The wheels are falling off. Thank goodness we've been given a rescue plan. Hats off to NHS England. The problem is this rescue plan is like being pulled out of quicksand by the mouth of a hungry lion. Soon we'll all just be little dollops of lion poo. Thank goodness that if we're happy to name and shame practices that may be struggling, if we're happy to name and shame GPs that may be earning more than £150,000, some of us might get a smidge of extra cash. Buy a few more GPs. Hang on a second. There aren't any more. No one can do any more. Buy a few extra nurses or paramedics or pharmacists maybe. The big question is, of course, where are they coming from? The problem is, it's not just general practice that's having a hard time. Everywhere is having a hard time. A friend of mine is a hospital pharmacist. They've got loads of vacancies. They cannot fill them. A few of their pharmacists left due to Brexit, but guess where most of them have gone? Into the community. Turns out they don't like doing on-calls or weekends either. But as we strip hospitals bare leaving them understaffed and unable to keep up with the relentless demand in hospitals, guess where all that work goes? You got it. Right down to us. It's the ultimate zero-sum game, an ever-enlarging vicious spiral of turd. You can shuffle turds around as much as you like, should you wish to. Maybe put some gloves on, wash your hands afterwards. But for all the shuffling around that you can do at the end of the day, it's still just a bunch of turd. So it seems like the gloves are coming off. The BMA is balloting GPs to see if they want to stand their ground. Is this the moment where things might start to change? Everyone agrees that there needs to be change. Maintaining the status quo is no longer an option. The problem that we got is as a profession, the problem we've got is as a profession, We don't have a unified idea of where we want to go and of what we want to do. The first thing we need is to all get together and decide this is the course of action. It's no good us being balloted and taking industrial action if we don't know what we want. What do we want? I don't know. When do we want it? Really soon. The reality is, at the moment, the government and the right-wing media have won the PR battle. Is it helpful to strike when much of public opinion is not in our favour? Of course, the government know this. They're sitting there rubbing their hands with glee, knowing that right now almost every option is a bad option. But perhaps I'm missing the point. Perhaps industrial action is not so much about fighting back against the government. Perhaps it's about improving our own morale, bringing us together and making us have this conversation. What do we want? When do we want it? How are we going to get there? Those are the questions that we need to be asking. And then those are the questions we need to be asking of our government. It's Friday, the 22nd of October. This is the Hot Topics podcast. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker and as usual I'm here to bring you some of the latest news and research relevant to us in the world of general practice. I hope that you're doing okay wherever you are. I hope that the workload is not too overwhelming. I hope that your patients are being kind. It's been a hard few weeks taking all this abuse from the media 
And I think some of us were feeling a little bit more positive with the idea about some rescue plan coming into play. And then, of course, NHS England revealing their hand and showing exactly which side they're on. Nevertheless, the world keeps turning, the patients keep coming and we keep trying to sort them out. And we do just need to take a step back sometimes, give ourselves that time to just reflect What do our patients actually think? What do the majority of the population actually think? And of course, we know because we've asked them recently in our national GP survey. And the reality is that the vast majority are very happy with the service that we provide. The vast majority can get the appointment that they want and need. They don't have any animosity towards anyone working in general practice. They're just very grateful for us trying to help care for them. So when things feel bad, just hold on to that fact. And if it all gets too much, well, it's Friday. At least it's the weekend. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Go for that run. Do a spot of yoga. Watch rubbish on TV. Cuddle that guinea pig. Be a bit careful with guinea pigs. They've got sharp teeth and they wee on you. Got weed on by a guinea pig recently. I don't think it was malicious, but I clearly overinterpreted the level of our friendship. Anyway, I digress. Whatever gives you pleasure, whatever helps you relax... Make some time for yourself. Now, what are we going to talk about today? Three bits of research. We're going to kick off with something in the BJGP, identifying multimorbidity clusters with the highest primary care use. As we think about whether we need to be redesigning primary care, maybe we could also think about how we fund it and where we earn the money. So this paper might help inform us about that. We are going to have a look at a very important paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine on empagliflozin in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And then we're going to round up looking at a couple of papers in The Lancet touching on atrial fibrillation screening. Now, let's start with this BJGP paper. We all know that people with multimorbidity can be very complex to manage as we add in more diseases, into the mix, things get a bit messy, a bit murky. They don't neatly fit into guideline recommendations. We've got them on people often on polypharmacy. That can be problematic as well. And of course, unpicking all of this and helping these patients takes time. It takes time and it takes resources. It may take multiple consultations, lots of investigations, lots of practice resources. And so if we've got an older population who is generally multimorbid, then practices are very reasonably compensated for that complexity. Now, one of the things that's interesting about multimorbidity is that people tend to get disease clusters with it. So you can imagine if you've got type 2 diabetes, you may also have hypertension, CKD. Maybe you've had a cardiovascular event. There are classic patterns or clusters that tend to emerge. And so this paper's aim was to look at different types of multimorbidity clusters and the number of consultations they had in primary care. Five different clusters they looked at then. So we had a mental health, which was depression and anxiety, cardiovascular, including basically everything you can think of in cardiovascular disease, pain, including arthritis and chronic pain, liver, including chronic liver disease and viral hepatitis, and then dependence, alcohol and substance dependence and HIV. So this was a retrospective longitudinal study looking at over 800,000 patients registered to GP practices in London between 2005 and 2020. 
no surprise that if you have multi-morbidity, you generally started using your GP practice more frequently over that period. And indeed, anyone with multi-morbidity uses the services two to three times as much as someone who does not have multi-morbidity. But what was really interesting was the clusters that showed the greatest increase in use over time. And um, top of the list was actually dependency. So you might think that it would be cardiovascular disease, the stuff with diabetes in. No, it's dependency, people who are struggling with alcohol and drug misuse. And then second was mental health. So people with anxiety and depression. I think it's reasonable to say that our GP funding system, as things stands, doesn't really acknowledge this burden on practices. So the practice where I've worked for years until recently, so it's an inner city practice, it has a large student population. There is extreme levels of mental ill health within this group. It is extraordinarily time consuming. We also have high levels of deprivation, um, substance and alcohol misuse and some homeless patients as well. All of these take lots of time and are very challenging, but none of this is reflected in funding. So I think this paper is very helpful. It helps us understand what's driving demand at specific practices. And as we come to this middle part of the pandemic, and I hope it's the middle, um, it's definitely not the end. We're nowhere near the end yet, but I hope we're in the middle. As we come to the middle part of the pandemic, as the economic effects are being felt, we're starting to get rising inflation. The poorest in society are going to be hit hardest by that. We're seeing rises in mental health problems across the board. Maybe much of that is what's driving the, the really high demand that we're seeing in general practice at the moment. And wouldn't it be great if we started to see that being reflected in how we are funded rather than having some nonsense rescue packages? Now, if you've been on the current Hot Topics course, you know that we spend a lot of time talking about SGLT2 inhibitors. It may be that they are going to be the drug of the decade. There seems to be an increasing range of indications for prescribing them. It's not just diabetes, but heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, chronic kidney disease as well. Who knows where the list may end? This new paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine looks at the role of empagliflozin for managing heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So the problem we've got with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or diastolic heart failure as it used to be known is that we currently don't have any treatments that might actually improve someone's overall mortality, their overall prognosis. So we might treat them with ACEs, we might treat them with beta blockers, and we might, might well be giving them diuretics and that might lead to some symptomatic improvement but not a mortality benefit. As a condition it has been stubbornly resistant to all attempts at treatment so far. So could the SGLT2 inhibitors be the thing that turns that around? So this was a randomized control trial, 6,000 patients with heart failure and an ejection fraction of more than 40%. They either had empagliflozin 10 milligrams once a day or placebo in addition to their usual heart failure therapy. The primary outcome they were looking for was a composite of cardiovascular death or hospitalization from heart failure. And the study ran for just over 26 months and it showed that there was an absolute risk reduction of just over 3% with the use of empagliflozin. So uh, numbers needed to treat of around 30 or so. 
for the absolute figures, it went 17% in the placebo group had a death or hospitalization, 13.8% in the empagliflozin group. As we've seen with um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and with CKD, these benefits seem to occur whether people have diabetes or not. So is this a ray of light for people who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Well, it is very positive. And let's be honest, this group could do with some positive news for a change. This is the first drug that has demonstrated a positive prognostic benefit. But before we get too excited, the devil is always in the details. And as the paper points out... Subgroup analysis suggests that any benefit may have been preferentially seen in patients with an ejection fraction of 40 to 49%. So if you go to the European Society of Cardiology um, heart failure guidance, it gives you the definition of heart failure and its types. So heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, of course, is a heart is an ejection fraction of less than 40%. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is where where you have an ejection fraction of greater than 50%. And then there's this term I'd not really come across before, which is this little thing in the middle where you've got an ejection fraction of 41 to 49. And they term that heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction. And in the paper, if you have a look at these different subgroups, so the group with an LV ejection fraction of less than 50% had quite clear benefits. In the 50 to 60% group, there still seemed to be benefit overall. There was a um, hazard ratio of 0.8, but the confidence intervals are really right up against the line of no effect. The confidence intervals go from 0.64 up to 0.99. Statistically speaking, that's still a win, but it's so close that it makes you wonder. And then when it's over 60%, then um, it's not a statistically significant finding. So perhaps this isn't such great news for our patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. We can be cautiously optimistic, but I think this is going to be one of those times where we really do need to wait for a bit more data before we can be genuinely positive. Lastly, we're going to have a look at a couple of papers on screening for atrial fibrillation published in The Lancet today. The idea of screening for atrial fibrillation is not a new one. And years ago, we had some data suggested that it might be possible and it might be worthwhile. There seemed little appetite for this, however. And I think probably a lot of that was down to the fact that there was little capacity for us to be doing any more than we already were. So does any of this new data change that? Well, first, let's look at the stroke stop trial. This was a randomized controlled trial undertaken in Sweden. 75 or 76 year olds were randomly assigned to be invited for screening or to a control group. And if they were in the screening group, they would be invited to have intermittent ECGs for 14 days. Of course, if they were diagnosed with AF, then they were given appropriate treatment. So the majority would be on anticoagulation. And then they were followed up for at least five years with the primary endpoint being ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, systemic embolism, bleeding leading to hospitalization or all-cause death. So after a median follow-up of almost seven years, they found that the screening group did come out on top. So they had a statistically significant fall in the number of primary endpoint events that occurred. So in the control group, 33%, 
had an event in the intervention group 31.9. That's a 1.1% absolute risk reduction. Now, in the world of researchers, and particularly when it comes to cardiovascular diseases, they tend to consider a 1% absolute risk reduction as being truly impressive. Most of us in the real world might be slightly less excited about relatively small gains for what might seem like a relatively large amount of effort. Intermittent ECGs for 14 days? Well, what if you could put in a lot more effort? What if you could put in an implantable loop recorder? Welcome to the future, baby. This is where we're at right now. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? The concept of introducing more and more invasive technology to our bodies in an attempt to try and keep ourselves alive a little bit longer. And if it were me, I'm not entirely sure that I would want to be a participant in this trial. But I suppose if you ask me again in 30 or 40 years, I might have a very different perspective on things. This was a trial done in four centres in Denmark. They randomly assigned participants who are aged between 70 and 90 with at least one additional stroke risk factor, such as hypertension, diabetes, heart failure or previous stroke, to either a usual care group, the control group, or to an implantable loop recorder monitor. So implantable loop recorders are exactly like you think they must be. So they go under the skin, usually on the left side of the chest, in a similar position to where you might traditionally expect to see a pacemaker. And then they sit there monitoring the electrical activity of the heart and then feeding that information back to a computer. Traditionally, that's been a bit of a procedure to get one in and now more modern smaller devices can even be injected into the area below the skin. Now this was a screening study this is not just a detection of AF studies so if patients had atrial fibrillation detected in either of the groups they were they were, they were then started on anticoagulation as appropriate and then they were followed up over a number of years. So mean age of participants was 75 the mean duration of follow-up was just about six and a half years 6,000 individuals were randomised to one of the two groups. They detected AF in three times as many people in the loop recorder group. More people started on anticoagulation, but interestingly, the outcomes overall were unchanged. And they conclude in the paper that this might imply that not all atrial fibrillation is, is worth screening for, and not all screen-detected atrial fibrillation merits anticoagulation. So this might have implications for the concept of atrial fibrillation screening, but also it raises interesting questions about the whole concept of wearable technology and the idea about monitoring more and more the different physiological processes that are going on in our bodies. Actually, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's not actually going to improve anything. And maybe all it's going to do is increase medicalization and anxiety. That'll do for today, I think. Do check out the website as ever, mbmedical.com. So I ran the Green GP course uh, a week ago now. It remains free and on demand. You can go back and watch it at any time if you are interested in the environment as the COP26 meeting happens in the next few weeks and we're all being a bit more mindful about our effects on the world. Then let's think what we can do to improve things from general practices perspective. Loads of other stuff going on with MB as, as well. So do have a look at all the courses coming up on the website. And I hope you have a very restful weekend, everyone. You all deserve it. Remember, as always, you can get in touch. Email hottopics at mbmedical.com. 
uh, Twitter at GP Hot Topics or get in touch on Facebook. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.